This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. Today I'm here with Cap Times K 12 education reporter Scott Gerard. Welcome, Scott. Hello, thank you for having me on the podcast, Natalie. Absolutely. Now, listeners, if things sound a little different today, it's because we've changed some things in response to the coronavirus. We know that the experts have recommended what they're calling social distancing, or as we like to call it, cocooning, and that everyone who can stay home should stay home as much as possible. So we're recording this interview remotely, each from our own homes. So let's dive in. Scott, you wrote about an incident at a Madison Elementary School that seems to have eroded families' trust in schools. Can you tell me more about that incident? Sure. So back in December, on a Friday, a student at Lowell Elementary School told his mom he was feeling funny when she was picking him up from school that day. Uh, She asked why, and he said a teacher had choked him, uh, which, of course, concerned that mom a great deal. Uh, So she went in and tried to talk to some staff members, uh, talked to the school social worker, eventually went to police because she was very concerned about what happened and wanted them to investigate in addition to the school. Uh, The next week, after she was still dissatisfied with the school's follow-up to this incident, She went on a local radio show to share her concerns, and from there, things started to snowball a bit uh, with some public information that was shared, which was disputed, uh, her characterization of the story and her son's characterization of the story. So tell me more about the school's response. What have they done? Sure. So initially, uh, you know, they had a few conversations with her, but she really wanted to understand what was happening to the teacher in response to this incident, uh, and they were pretty private with that information, uh, according to her, uh, citing personnel rules. And so she went and shared a story on a radio show. And at the end of that same week where she had shared that information, the uh, school sent out an email signed by the principal that disputed some of those claims. And at that point, the mother felt, I think, pretty uh, hurt by the school, felt that she and her son were being called liars, as she told me, uh, publicly. And that also uh, is what attracted some other parents to this. They had heard the radio show and they saw that letter and wondered how those two things could go together. So from that point on, you know, there's been a few meetings that the mothers had with school personnel, uh, including the principal, uh, the superintendent of schools, and, uh, you know, really discussing what she wants as a response to this incident. And at this point, she has told me she still doesn't feel like she's gotten that response that she wants. What are the rules here? When are school staff allowed to restrain kids? Yeah, so the board, uh, the school board has a policy for district staff, and it specifically says that the board, uh, and I'll quote here, does not condone the use of restraint or seclusion by employees when dealing with students. There are a few exceptions to that also written into the policy. So those exceptions include that it needs to be the, quote, least restrictive intervention feasible. And staff are also supposed to be trained in restraint and seclusion tactics uh, unless, and again, I'll quote here, 
it's an emergency and only if a district employee who has been trained in the use of restraint is not immediately available due to the unforeseen nature of the emergency. And really, emergency uh, often means an imminent danger to other staff or students in the area. Got it. And what do we know about the circumstances when this kid was restrained? So based on what uh, came out in the police report, uh, the student was running around and disobeying the teacher. And from what I understand, there was another student who was also running around who sort of stopped the behavior after this uh, staff member requested that they stop this behavior. But Kim Williams's son continued the behavior. And so the teacher got frustrated and acknowledged it was frustration to the police and picked him up from behind with two arms, uh, as described by both the student and the staff member, and brought him uh, either to the other side of the room or out of the room. And how often are kids being restrained in Madison schools? Yeah, so the last public report is from the 2018-19 school year, which we wrote about back in December. It showed an ongoing decline in the number of seclusion and restraint incidents. Uh, So last school year, 324 students were restrained or secluded, a total of 1,420 times in the district. Uh, So both of those were down from the previous year, in which 540 students were restrained or secluded, a total of 2,482 times. Most of the incidents, uh, both years, but also uh, in 2018-19, were at the elementary school level. And these numbers mean that some kids are being restrained multiple times. Exactly. You spoke with other parents from the same school about this. What was their reaction and what have they been doing? So many of them got involved to support Kim uh, after seeing that email home and having heard the radio interview or being directed to her radio interview. And a lot of them wondered, you know, how the what the mom was saying, what the what the school described in that letter home could be of the same incident. Um, And so they got involved to support Kim and reach out to her and offer just kind of backup on uh, her asking the school for a response. And, you know, it it started sort of through the parent group in the neighborhood and uh, kind of evolved into this group of uh, about 20 parents who who have been really uh, supporting her through her asking for an apology from the school and things like that. And so uh, a lot of them have met with Kim regularly, uh, written letters, signed letters to the district, gone to meetings with her to ensure her questions get answered. She told me that that support has meant a lot for her uh, and just her comfort at the school in general. And she's also doesn't feel confident that she would have gotten the response from the district that she did without it. And by that, I mean the the meetings that she's had uh, with the superintendent and principal. In your story, you make the case that this isn't really just about one incident, that other things suggest the trust between families and schools was already fragile before this happened. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, the the poll I cite in the article uh, is a national poll, and it really shows a general decline in trust in institutions over time, uh, confidence in schools being no exception to that. The most recent numbers showed 29% of people had a positive response about their confidence in schools, which was exactly half of what it was in 1973. And I think that's 
a sentiment that rings true in Madison as well, and especially for some in the black community, given the ongoing disparities uh, in schools with things like suspensions and academic outcomes for their children. Uh, and so it's it's something that's happened over time. And I, I don't mean to say that uh, schools don't have the trust of plenty of parents in Madison. Uh, they do. But I think generally there's a, a more fragile sense of trust there. So given that trend, why is this incident important? And what does this incident show us? Well, I think it illustrates some careful lines schools have to navigate. And it also shows that uh, perception can be everything. Uh, this student and this teacher perceive seemingly what happened in that in that room that day very differently. And so navigating the information you share given different perceptions uh, can be very complicated. And when you add in social media where information, true and untrue, uh, as we know as journalists, uh, can spread like wildfire, it, it adds a lot of complications for districts in navigating one information they point out. You know, as a journalist, I think skepticism of institutions is a very important thing uh, in society. It's it's something we do regularly. But the balance of uh, how that skepticism plays in to a school setting and parents being skeptical while also trusting the people who are in front of their children for eight plus hours a day, it's a really complicated equation. And so I, I think it's just important to examine incidents and how they affect that trust. Yeah. And some of the parents told you that this wasn't even really about exactly what happened in that room or exactly whether the teacher touched the kid's neck or didn't touch the kid's neck. Correct. And I heard that from a few different parents. And what they were really getting at is that a child felt traumatized in this situation whatever happened, uh, whatever. And, and part of the problem is uh, apparently there were no cameras in this room, no one recording the incident. So it really comes down to a he said, she said thing. And, and so that is obviously hard to investigate. That said, if that student felt traumatized, that student felt traumatized, uh, these parents point out, and they think that should be the school's focus in resolving that trauma. And you know that the district has been making efforts maybe in that kind of direction, um, like to implement restorative justice approaches uh, in other ways. To what extent did the school use restorative approaches here? Yeah, so that depends on who you ask. Uh, the, the district contends that it did offer some of those restorative approaches, but they've declined to offer details on that, uh, citing kind of the privacy of the family. The mom does not feel that those were offered until too late. By the time that there was a specific restorative process that she feels like she was offered, it was from a district social worker, and that response only came because another parent had reached out to that district social worker. So I think from that mom's perspective, the efforts came too late for her to feel like there was anything to restore. And one thing that's been discussed a little bit with restorative justice from some parents I've heard is the importance of proactive restorative justice. It's often seen as a reactive thing, and, and that certainly is an element. But restorative justice can also be a proactive uh, activity in building trust and building mechanisms to respond when incidents happen. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. 
So Kim Williams is the mom of the boy in question. What did she say she wants? So she has told me she wants a public apology and a zero tolerance policy for teachers being hands-on with students if they're not trained. So interim superintendent Jane Belmore did write a letter to families last month in which she wrote that she was, quote, deeply sorry for the anxiety this situation has caused one of our Lowell families, end quote. But I don't think that's exactly what Kim was looking for. Uh, You know, I think Kim wants the district and the school to take a little bit more responsibility directly for what's happened. And so she's still waiting for that. And what did other parents say that they want? So they want to better understand what happens at school and see more transparency and communication from the school when things happened. Uh, I mentioned a second incident in my piece, and, and I don't go into much detail because I wasn't able to verify too much of that. What I heard was rumors, uh, which was similar to what parents heard from their children. And a few parents talked to me about the challenge of having their children ask them questions about an incident and not having any context to respond with uh, or offer back. Um, And so that's really a difficult position for those parents, I think. Um, One of them described picking up uh, his son and walking home and his son detailing an incident and the parent saying, well, I I don't know if that happened. Uh, And so they're asking for that. And it's it's complicated, uh, again, for schools in what information they do provide. But I think parents would like to better understand what goes into decisions about what information to provide from the schools. The other thing parents stressed to me throughout this was that they wanted to keep Kim's story at the center of all this and trying to find that balance of centering her story and and what she and her family are going through uh, while also getting at the bigger ideas of trust in schools and their desire for more communications. And why is now a particularly important time for Madison area schools to have families trust? Yeah, here in Madison, there's going to be two referenda on the November ballot, a new superintendent coming this summer. There's more charter schools, more uh, private school options, more open enrollment options for parents uh, to look elsewhere if they don't trust the, the schools that they're going to be sending their kids to. So there's really a lot of reasons that trust is really key for Madison schools right now. And as you were reporting this story, what was particularly surprising to you? I think it's... A concept that I've always had in the back of my mind, but seeing how it played out in this situation was still surprising. But trust is such a a tough concept and, and a tough thing for people to have in other people, oftentimes, I think. And seeing how one letter home can start such a spiral of distrust and how challenging it is to rebuild trust later on, it still surprised me to see how that played out. Um, You know, I've always thought about the idea of if you trust a principal and they tell you, I can't tell you much, but we're taking care of it, you're going to walk out of there saying, awesome, they're taking care of it. If you don't trust that person and they say, I can't tell you much, but we're taking care of it, you're going to walk out of there feeling like you got blown off. And the in-between of those is is not easy to navigate. And so it's, it's fascinating to see how it played out in this instance. And why was this story important to you? Yeah, you know, one of the biggest things I love about covering schools is the way it collects all of society in so many ways at schoolhouse doors. And that brings a lot of challenges with it. And so I think it's important to highlight how those challenges play out, including trust and communication and how uh, fraught that concept can be and how challenging it can be to rebuild. I hope that 
we can uh, have a conversation about uh, what limits schools have on communication, why those limits exist, what are other methods they can get information to parents out, and what are the ways that uh, they can build trust with families. Uh, no matter what school a family's going to, trust is extremely important. And lastly, what developments are you watching for in this story? I think I'll uh, just be keeping an eye out on the district's communication methods, uh, what its plans are for communicating when incidents happen at school, and then what follow-up there is for Kim Williams and her family. Scott, thanks so much for being on the podcast and for trying out our new remote recording. Um, We appreciate it. It's an honor to be the first uh, remote podcast. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Scott Gerard, who spends his days getting the lowdown on Madison area schools. Tune in next week for an interview with state government reporter Brianna Riley. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Madsplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.